passage of scriptures this morning will be 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. And if you're using a pew Bible, you can find it on page 1018. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless the proclamation of his word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we've just confessed in that last hymn our lack of obedience to this passage. And um, we're humbled by that. The reality is um, we have a lot of growth to do. We need a lot of help. We need your divine assistance. So, Lord, if you do one thing among us today, I pray that you would stir Stir a hunger in our people to seek your face in 2013 like never before. That you would begin to stir um, the hearts of all of our members and even those who are visiting with us and even those who are lost. Stir, Lord, stir. Bring your spirit, spirit to bear upon us and move us by this text that we will examine and set before our hearts. We pray for your help. We need your help. And I certainly ask you for your grace to take what is so weak and do something eternally of eternal significance with. For your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace. From day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all of our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Well, those are the uh, famous words of Shakespeare in his Macbeth. And he speaks to the presumed futility of life. The truth is, ultimately, life is meaningless outside of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. A good example of this is Robert Barton, 
a very successful cartoonist who had every reason to live from a human standpoint. But you know, he never found the meaning of life. In fact, Robert Barton took his life tragically. He ended it. And this is what he wrote on his death note. He said, I'm fed up with inventing devices to fill up 24 hours of the day. Just bored. Nothing else to do. What, what, what is life for? And that boredom drove him to utter despair and he ended his life. The truth is life is meaningless outside of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's been said by one man that to give life meaning, one must have a purpose larger than oneself. If you're your purpose for existing, you need something bigger than that. And that's true. And that's why Peter goes out of his way to explain what a meaningful life looks like. And here in these verses that Jason just read for us, in verses 5 through 7, he paints this picture of what that meaningful life looks like. And then he says in verse 8, he says, If these qualities are yours, and if they are increasing, then they will keep you from being useless and unfruitful. Anybody here want to have a useless life or an unfruitful life? No, we all want to be useful and fruitful. And so Peter lays out a prescription for what that looks like. Now, we've just started this series through 2 Peter. And really, the essence of 2 Peter comes down to this. In knowing Jesus Christ, you have everything that you need for life and godliness. Really, this letter of 2 Peter is all about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, not only for faith, but also for life in general. And as we saw from verses 1 through 4, we have everything we need for life because of the great promises held out for us in the gospel. So two weeks ago, Pastor Mark gave us five reasons why we can be godly. Do you, do you remember those? Five reasons. Here they were. God's purchase of us. God's posture toward us. God's power made available for us. God's promises to us. And the last one was God's passion in us. In other words, in Jesus Christ, we have received forgiveness, the promise of heaven, and the very presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And because of that, Peter says, you have everything you need to live godly lives. So that was verses one through four. And really, that's the central message of this book. Now, the reason why I take time to review that up front uh, is simple. Because everything that Peter says in verses 5 through 8 are going to flow out of what he taught in 1 through 4. So it's essential that you hold these two things together, 1 through 4 and 5 through 8. These pieces go together, and they're connected by a very important phrase, which we'll look at in a moment. So if two weeks ago we considered the power of godliness, then today what we're doing is we're considering the pursuit of godliness. Or how can we live in such a way that we're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ? That's your goal, isn't it? That's your desire, to be every day conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's our big goal for 2013. If we accomplish something this year, we want to be more like Jesus Christ. What a tragic thing it would be if the end of 2013, if it ended, and we said, you know what? I don't think I grew at all as a Christian. 
I, I don't think I made any real advances or any strides or any steps forward as a Christian. And what I want to say to you all this morning is that we need a pattern. We need a process. We need some help to know how can we grow as Christians. So here we are at the beginning of 2013, and this text is meant to drive us, is meant to give us a pattern for growth in godliness. So just be praying as you're sitting there in your seat that God's spirit would come and move upon you in this sermon to give you a hunger to grow in 2013. May this text help us. That's the purpose of passages of scripture like this. And what Peter does is he lays out seven marks of a growing Christian. Now, as we look at each of these, I want to emphasize two things this morning. First, the pursuit of godliness requires effort. Sounds like an obvious statement, but it's often missed by Christians. Second, the pursuit of godliness is rooted in faith and it results in love. All right? Now, first, the pursuit of godliness requires effort. Notice how verse 5 begins. Peter says, for this very reason. Do you see the bridge between verses 1 through 4 and 5 through 8? The, the connection there is this. Verses 3 and 4 remind us that a life of godliness is rooted in God's grace. Peter's exhortation to live a holy life is grounded in God's mercy. In light of what God has done for you, Peter says, in light of that, make every effort. Now, to be clear, we're talking about Christian growth here. We're not talking about salvation. Salvation is not something that you earn. It's something that we receive by grace alone. But with that said, Peter's not intimidated or afraid to, to say, he doesn't hesitate to urge Christians to make every effort to grow in godliness. Those who are trusting Christ are expected to work. Do you see that? He says, for this very reason, for this gospel reason, for this reason, make every effort. See, and that's the logic of the gospel. It, it works like this. Because Jesus has won it all for you, spend your days in obedience to him. Push yourself, exert yourself, work up a sweat in your pursuit of godliness and do that all as a response to your salvation. So because you're so thrilled by what God has done for you in Jesus, because the gospel is so thrilling to you and has changed you so radically from the inside out, the motivation for godliness is there. It's just there. I want to be like Jesus because Jesus has done everything for me. That's the logic of the gospel. In other words, as we celebrate rightly all that Christ has, has saved us from, let's also think about and strive after all he has saved us to. Another way to say it is we've not been given divine power to sit on the couch spiritually. And some of us need to hear that this morning. This divine power has been given to you not so that you can say, oh, okay, great. I'm a Christian. I'm born again. I've been saved. So I guess I can just relax. No, that's not the goal of our salvation. The goal of our salvation is godliness. Those who are most passionate, listen, those who are most passionate about the gospel of God's free grace should also be those that are most passionate about the pursuit of godliness. The Christian life is not a passive let go and let God approach. 
Instead, it's a good soldier, hardworking farmer type of life. If we're not striving to be more like Christ, then we've forgotten the reason for which we've been called. Think about it. The whole reason that the Lord came was to redeem us from sin and to purify a people for himself who are zealous, who are eager for what? Good works. So if we forget that, then you know what we're like? We're like the person who goes out to the golf course and he just goes out there to exercise and for the companionship and for the equipment. He likes the clubs that he has and the scenery and riding around in the golf cart. But for some reason, he's forgotten that the whole point of going out there is to get the little white ball in the hole. Then he's just kind of going up and down the, the fairway. And I'm spending time on this point because I want it to be crystal clear that the grace of God not only empowers effort, okay, that's last week, that was two weeks ago, grace of God not only empowers effort, but listen, it demands effort. Since God has created, since God has acted, excuse me, since God has acted on our behalf, therefore you act. That's the very heart of New Testament ethics. But you have to get this order right because if you turn it around to where you're acting first and hoping God will do something for you because you're acting, you end up with a false gospel and a different religion. So let me give you an illustration here. A good illustration is marriage. There's a world of difference between a husband that doubts if his wife loves him and therefore labors to earn her love and a marriage in which a husband is absolutely confident that she loves him and therefore takes joyful pains not to live in a manner unworthy of that love. That's a totally different motivation for honoring and doing things for his wife. So God's grace comes first and that grace motivates our effort. Now let me show you a place in the Bible where these two things come together, God's grace and human effort. It's really quite remarkable. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians 15, um, Paul is talking about his apostleship. And in verse nine, he's talking about how he's the least of the apostles. He says this, he says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? He says, because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10, now listen to the language, look closely. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's a clear statement about grace. By, by the, not by my work, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, listen, I worked harder. Whoa. <laughs> than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So we have this great emphasis on the grace of God. And at the same time, we have this great emphasis on Paul saying, I worked harder. How does that fit together? That, that seems like an odd juxtaposition, but it's not. 
Because if we're going to flourish as Christians, then we must hold these two things together. They're meant to be in tension. They're meant to live together in tension. So Paul is saying on the one hand, I'm working very hard. I'm busting my tail. I'm working so hard. I'm trying to live a life worthy of my calling. I'm laboring to plant and lead churches, and, and I'm seeking to be a man of God in every way. I'm working hard. I, I'm, I'm, I'm up early in the morning. I'm in bed late at night. But on the other hand, on the other hand, Paul says, let me be really clear that everything I just said about working hard and exerting all my effort, even that is the grace of God. Even that is God's grace in me. It's God's gift. Do you see that? That's the essence of Christian growth. So you need to understand two things this morning about pursuing personal holiness. Number one, you must work hard. Number two, God's grace must be at work in you. If you're going to grow this year, you must work hard and God's grace must be at work in you, fueling that work. Or to use Kevin DeYoung's language, which is so helpful here, he says, growth in godliness requires gospel-driven, faith-fueled, spirit-empowered effort. Now, that's four things there, okay? Gospel-driven, faith-fueled, spirit-empowered effort. So on this one side, we have grace, faith, and spirit-empowered. All that is God's work. Grace, faith, God gives us faith, and spirit-empowered help. That's God's work, but don't miss this one, effort, effort. All right, so that's the pattern for growth. In light of the gospel, because God is at work in you, make every effort. That's the first point. The pursuit of godliness requires effort. Second, the pursuit of godliness is rooted in faith and it results in love. Now, what Peter does is is he mentions seven fruits of godliness that are all rooted in this tree of faith. Look at the list there. To faith, we are to add virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. I want you to notice two things about this list. First, I don't think Peter intends for us to sort of read this sequentially. Like, okay, so that when you're you're done getting knowledge, you can start working on self-control. And when you kind of have the whole self-control thing down, then you can start working on steadfastness. I don't think that's what Peter's saying. He's not saying... Okay, you start with the first thing, you kind of work your way through the list, and when you've made it all the way to love, man, you are a fantastic Christian. You have really kind of made it. That's not what he's doing here. Instead, what I think Peter's doing is he's painting a balanced picture of what a mature Christian life looks like. I mean, what does a a well-rounded Christian look like? Second, notice this about the list. The list begins with faith and it ends with love. And I think that is intentional. I mean, that's just so New Testament. Faith springing into love. That's classic New Testament teaching. The basis of all Christian growth is faith and having faith in the confident and having confidence in the promises of God. Trusting God, believing God is the fountain from which all other virtues spring. In fact, all sin is a result of unbelief. And all obedience is a result of faith. So 
Paul's point, that's exactly Paul's point in Galatians 5 when he says, faith expresses itself in love. But the point here is that our pursuit of godliness is rooted in faith, and guess what it results in? Love, which is the highest of the Christian virtues mentioned in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2, Colossians 3, all highlight love as being that preeminent virtue. Now, if, if that's true, if all Christian virtue is rooted in faith, then I need to make this point clear. Because some people are trying to produce, think about this, produce these virtues without having faith in Christ. It, isn't that what happens? Every, everybody wants to be a good person. I mean, basically, people say, I, I'm striving to be a good person. In fact, some of you may be here today. I mean, the truth be told, you're trying to do the things in this passage in your own strength. You're trying to live the Christian life, but you're doing it from a natural basis. But friend, if that's you, let me make clear that the origin of Christian character and all true Christian experience is not natural, it's supernatural. The origin is supernatural, it's not natural. It begins with a work of the Holy Spirit, as Jonathan Edwards says in very Puritan language, a divine and supernatural light immediately imparted to the soul of, of man by the Spirit of God. It's like an arrow that God fires into your heart. And he pulls back the bow, God does, when he regenerates a man. And he looks at a man and he pulls it back and he lets it go. And it flies and right in a man's heart. And he's regenerated and his eyes open. And that's what God has done in this room. He has regenerated us in this room. Arrows into the heart regeneration. This is a supernatural work. You may be sitting there today and you don't have, that arrow has never into your heart. And you're trying to live out this virtue list. That's not possible. It begins with the work of the Holy Spirit. You, are, you have to become a new creation in Christ Jesus. Don't try to live the Christian life without having Christ in you. You have to have Jesus. So here's what you must do. If you're sitting there and you're saying, I don't know, maybe you're right. I don't, maybe I don't have Christ in my life. Here's what you need to do. Give up on your efforts to live for God in your own flesh. Give up on your efforts to be a good person. Entrust yourself to God. Ask God for his righteousness. That's the whole premise of Christianity. Your righteousness isn't good enough. Therefore, let all that go, get on your face, tell God my righteousness stinks, it's filthy, it's rotten, it's not good enough, and then say, God, I need your righteousness, come and give me yours. And Jesus gives you his righteousness. So give your whole self to Christ today and then make a commitment to live for him. Well, let's look at these seven marks then of a growing Christian, because I wanna help you. I want us to to be formed by this passage, to be moved and changed and transformed. The first mark of a growing Christian is that he's virtuous. Now, the word virtue can be translated moral excellence or goodness. I think the NIV reads goodness. And the idea behind it is, is ethical living. 
It's a person that's marked by good character and conduct. It's looking at your whole life and saying, it all belongs to God. My personal life and my public life is not mine. I'm living all of it under the eye of God. No secrets. No secrets. No secrets. That's virtuous. The Latin expression is quorum deo, living life before the face of God. To live to live quorum deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and for the glory of God. In the presence of God, under the authority of God, and for the glory of God. That's what it means to live life in the face of God. Every moment you're thinking, okay, God is here. I'm, I'm, I'm in the presence of God. My life counts. It matters. It's important. What I do, what I say, what I think how I behave, the attitude of my heart, the motivations of my life. God is paying attention to all those things and they all matter deeply. And so a man is moved by that. A virtuous person is a person with excellence of character. Sometimes you hear a person described as a good man, right? He's a good man. Sadly, that's rare in our day. It's sad that we don't hear that more often than we do. I can think though, when you say, okay, who's a good man that you know? Can think of, I can think of some examples, praise God, in this church of men and women that I would say he's a good man, she's a good woman. And that's crucial in our day. According to the Bible, what, what is it that makes a person virtuous? The answer really is, is, is right here. It's so simple. The ideal person is Jesus Christ himself. If you want to know what the essence of virtue is, what's the nature of true virtue, to use Edward's language again? The nature of true virtue, the essence of true virtue is Jesus Christ. By looking at him, you will see what, his, what goodness is, what true goodness and virtue is. And by seeing him, we can begin to emulate Jesus and model that so that we will demonstrate true virtue by how we live. We pattern our life after Jesus. Now, let me apply that. Let me get really practical here and apply this. This means that your most important speech as a parent to your children or your most important sermon, anything that you will ever say to anybody for the rest of your life, your most important sermon is your life. When people speak to you, can they tell that you've been with Jesus? Remember that? The disciples, it says, they, they knew that they had been with Jesus, it says. Yeah? The, the most important gift you can give another person is your own transformed and God-soaked or saturated presence. When you're affected by God, when you are changed deeply on the inside, that's the best gift you can give to another person. It's just your own transformed life. We should, we should be leaving people in conversation with the aroma of Christ. They should be around us and say, you know what? I can sense that that man or woman has been with God. But friends, if that's going to happen, then we have to live at the foot of the cross. We have to live at the footstool of divine mercy. We have to live at the throne of grace. So that means we have to develop a consistent habit of secret prayer and communion with God. That's the issue. Everybody wants to be godly and make progress in godliness, but do we have the discipline to develop the habit of consistent and regular secret prayer and communion with God? Because that's the recipe for a good and virtuous life. Well, the second mark of a growing Christian 
is that he's knowledgeable. Notice the word knowledge there. He's knowledgeable. Knowledge matters. Big time. It really, really matters. Think about it. Many Christians are very sincere, but they're also very confused. In the book, Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of Teenagers, it's a fascinating um, survey. Uh, it's, it's really amazing. It's the landscape of religious culture. And in there, there's a chapter in that book entitled, God, Religion, Whatever. That epitomizes especially our youth culture today. That's a great illustration for the religious landscape of our culture. People are either confused or they're just totally indifferent, whatever. God, religion, and whatever. You know, just indifference. But Peter calls us to add to our faith knowledge. The idea behind this word is a practical, experiential knowledge of God. It's not saving knowledge like verse 3. In verse 3, he uses the word epigenoso. And, and, and that word is there clearly, clearly moving toward the idea of saving knowledge. But here, there's a pull, pulling back of the word, and, and it seems to be more of a practical understanding and a practical experience of who God is. In other words, his person, his character. So let me ask you some questions. Do you study God? Are you seeking to know God? Because your greatest calling and highest responsibility is to know God. Do you believe that? If we tracked your life with a video camera over the last month, what would your life reveal about your greatest desires? Would we see you speaking to God? Would we see you living in the book? Would we see you seeking to know God and spending time with him? Because friend, your great need is to know God and to walk with him. Your great need is to come face to face with the God of glory and to be transformed in his presence from one degree of Christ-likeness to another. Your number one responsibility, your greatest calling and highest responsibility is to get on your face before God morning after morning and be transformed in his presence. To know God, is that your passion? Let me apply this. Again, and be practical for, for those who are in ministry, especially those who are mentoring in this church or in discipleship relationships or even moms and dads who are trying to shepherd your children. Hear me. If you don't feed yourself, you can't feed others. Many teachers read the Bible. They prepare lessons for Sunday school classes and for, and for discipleship times and one-on-one mentoring but listen, many people read the Bible to prepare their lessons, but you must read the Bible to prepare your soul. Because your first calling is to know God, not serve God. Parents, your first calling is to know God, not serve God. Pastors, mentors, your first calling is to know, to know your God, to personally know him. And then from that, from that life, you can serve him. So are you increasing in your knowledge of God? If not, let me give you several practical suggestions to help you with this. Number one, read the Bible deeply. That last word's really important. Read the Bible deeply. 
Beyond prayer, seek to know God by spending large amounts of time in his word. Search the scriptures to know God. What is he like? Do you know God's heart? What does he care about? What, what is God passionate about? What matters to him? Do you know those answers? Study the Bible. Read deeply. Meditate. This takes time. Number two, read books about God. Study the doctrine of God. So read Arthur Pink's The Attributes of God. Read J.I. Packer's Knowing God. Read, if you're, if you're earnest, read this big, thick book, John Frame's The Doctrine of God. And for those who are younger, you teenagers or, or children, read something like this, like Godology by Christian George. The point is, do whatever you can to know God. And moms here, you're saying, look, look, all my kids, my life is so hectic and busy. I can't sit down. I don't have all that time to sit and plow through doctrines of God. I understand. If that's you, grab your iPad your, or your iPod or your iPhone. Get a good podcast. Put your earbuds in. Listen to the audio Bible. Soak yourself in the word all day. Listen to the word of God. Listen to a good podcast. Do whatever you can. If you can't sit down, then walk around and take care of your responsibilities, but listen to good things. There's other ways to accomplish the same purpose. Number three, these are practical suggestions for knowing God. Number three, make the knowledge of God the number one priority of your life. Like actually make it your number one priority. Don't, don't talk about it. Make it your number one priority. Make sure that in your heart, in your conscience, this is the number one calling of your life. Psalm 27, 4, I know I quote it all the time, but I have to keep coming back to it because it's so foundational. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Ask questions, to meditate, to think about him. Be a person of one thing. Don't just say that. Be that person. May God help you to do that. Number four, discipline and arrange your entire schedule around that decision. That'll be the first test as to whether or not the knowledge of God is your number one priority. Are you willing to move everything around to make that happen? We should love God, not because we ought to, but because we want to. Do whatever it takes to live this priority out in your daily schedule. Make sure that reading God's word or listening to God's word and praying are scheduled into your calendar and that you don't miss those appointments. Have you scheduled the Lord into your calendar? I mean, I mean literally, I'm, I'm asking the question, is, it, is God on your Google calendar? Is he in your planner? Is he in your daytimer? Have you really set that appointment? Is it serious to you? Discipline and arrange your entire schedule around that decision. So you say, okay, Pastor Jonathan, I wanna know God. Give me practical advice. Here it is. Read the Bible deeply, not just cursorily, not just surface. Read books about God. Make the knowledge of God the number one priority in your life and discipline and arrange your entire schedule around that decision. Now, I can't, I can't go further than that because you'll have to work that out. What does that mean for you? But these are some practical suggestions to get you started. The third mark of a growing Christian is that he is self-controlled. 
Of course, the opposite of self-control is what? It's an out-of-control life. And we all know what that looks like. An out-of-control life is the child that has to be restrained. It's the man or woman that if they don't figure out how to control their emotions, their anger, their appetites, and their passions, they're going to end up, listen, being restrained by society. And there's a name for that, and it's called prison. Even second, Think about this. Even secular, ungodly society has found a way to control people that can't control themselves. That, that's really the essence of prison. You can't control yourself, so we're going to have to control you for you. And here's what's so scary about this. If you're lost, if you don't know God, if you don't have the grace of God at work in your life, how are you going to resist the desires of your flesh? Friends, I tell you that unless, unless we flee to Christ, we will not. Something will take us down. It's, it may be a sexual addiction. It may be an alcohol or drug addiction. It may be an appetite or spending issue. But whatever it is, it will tear you down and it will ruin your life. How many people know people who have, been, who have had their lives ruined by a spending problem, an eating problem, a drinking problem, a drug problem? It will ruin and wreck your life. We all know this so well. What will happen to you? How far will the sexual addiction go? Think about this. How far? Adultery? Homosexuality? Rape? Pedophilia? Prison? How far will your out-of-control appetite take you? High blood pressure? Blood pressure medication? Hospitalization? Diabetes? Heart attack? Death at an early age? How far will your spending addiction go? Credit card debt, bankruptcy, eating a diet of rice and beans and living in a tiny apartment just to get your life back under control? Listen, self-restraint, self-discipline, and self-control, that is the issue. So by the grace of God, May we get a hold of our appetites, our impure thoughts, our anger, laziness, spending, and any other passion that is keeping us from God. God is calling us to a disciplined and a self-controlled life. I love Titus 2.11. Such a clear verse. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Listen to this word, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live. Here it is, a self-controlled, same word, upright and godly lives in the present age. That's our calling, self-control. The fourth mark of a growing Christian is that he's steadfast. I love this, steadfast. The word hupamone means to remain under, and it's sometimes translated in your Bible as patience or patient endurance. What is steadfastness, though? It's, it's the ability to hold fast to your convictions despite the opposition. It, it, we need strength to, to press on and stay the course despite resistance. And, and all of us are feel this at one degree or another in our lives. When you're criticized or persecuted and mocked, the question is, will you continue? This is very important. Growing Christians are marked by a quality of steadfastness. They stand on their convictions. It's what I would call a holy stubbornness. Steadfastness is a holy stubbornness not to quit. 
It's the husband or wife that says, no matter how hard this marriage gets, we will grow old together. We will work this out. We are not leaving, no matter how rocky this marriage gets. The partner says, I'm out of here. Somebody else says, no, you're not out of here. I'm not out of here. We're gonna stay here and we're gonna get old together. And if we have to, we'll fight to the very last day. But we're gonna stay together. It's a holy stubbornness. It's the young person who says, I'm struggling with sin. I'm battling lots of temptation at school, but, but you know what? I'm gonna keep reading my Bible. I'm gonna keep praying. I'm gonna keep going to church. I'm in college, and though, even though everyone else in my dorm is sleeping on Sunday morning, and trust me, they are, <laughs> I'm gonna go. I'm still gonna get up and go to church. I'm gonna be like, what are you doing? Like, you're, you're going to church? Yeah, I'm going to church. I'm gonna do that, I'm gonna do that steadfastness. It's the church member who says, I'm tired. I'm drained. I'm confused. I feel overworked and unmotivated. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I'm going to get to church. I'm going to worship God. I'm going to go to the prayer meeting. I'm going to attend that missional community group in hopes, in hopes, hopes. We are driven by the gospel people in hopes, listen, that God's grace will show up and minister his strength into my weakness. Hallelujah, praise God, that's what happens. Almost dead, lifeless, tired, weak, broken down Christians limp into the missional community group and they sit there and think this is gonna be a waste of my time and shoo, the spirit comes and awakens us through a prayer, through a book that we read, something. Shoo, shoo, shoo. Get yourself under the means of grace. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. There it is, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not a waste. Your ministry, what you're doing for the church that nobody else recognizes or sees, and it's frustrating you because you get no credit for it, it's seen by the Lord. That's all that matters. I'm gonna get out of bed. I'm gonna go and do it again. I'm so underappreciated here. Nobody cares. Nobody gives a rip about me. You know what? God gives a rip about you. He loves you. He's passionate about it. So you get out and you go. May God help you. Listen, we live in a culture of quitters. Do we not? If people don't think they're gonna win, if they think they're gonna fail, they quit. But of course, the only way to really fail is to quit. But listen, Christians don't quit. We press on, we remain steadfast. We need what Eugene Peterson calls long obedience in the same direction. Love that. All the way to the end of our life. Let's finish the race and let's finish it stronger than we started. I love the story of Eric Little, who when he ran the 400 meter, of course he set records back in his day, and when he ran the 400 meter, somebody asked him at one point of his life, how, how do you get so much success in running this 400 meter? What, what's your sort of approach to the race? You know what he answered? Here's what he said. He said, I run the first in his Scottish accent. I run the first 200 meters as fast as I can. And then I run the second 200 meters even faster. 
but that's a good characteristic of how we should live. We should end better than when, than when we started. You're, you're getting older in the Christian life. Let's pick up the speed. This isn't a time to kind of pull it back, back down into second, third, or second gear. This is time to ramp it on up into fifth gear, smash down on the accelerator, and just break yourself for Jesus until you're dead. Go hard. Go hard after Jesus. We have a lot of uh, fantastic older saints in our church. Uh, just gave Miss Faith a hug this morning. I'm so glad that we have you all here. Go hard after Jesus. You're, you're in your 90s. Great. Go hard after Jesus. And when you, get, when you die, you can say that you burned your candle out to the very end. And what a testimony that is for younger Christians. We need to see that. We need to see older Christians in here. We need to see you all going hard after Jesus. And so talk to us and we'll help you think through what does that look like in your life. And we'll pray together and explore ideas about how to do that. The point is we need closers and finishers. Christians are closers. Let me use a baseball analogy for you guys. All right, we need closers. We need Mariano Rivera's and Jonathan Papelbon's. Close the game. Close it out. Get the job done. Finish the battle. Whatever it takes through blood, sweat, and tears, my friends, that is steadfastness. The fifth mark of a growing Christian is that he's godly. Godliness is devotion in action. Jerry Bridges says this, no higher compliment can be paid a Christian than to call him a godly person. Isn't that true? If somebody says to you, the thing I love about you is I, I can sense your godliness. I know you love God. <laughs> Isn't that a great thing to hear? You can be conscientious. You can be zealous. You can be a hardworking, dynamic spokesman for Christ. You can be a talented Christian leader. But listen, none of those things matter if at the same time you're not godly. I don't care if you're an amazing speaker but with a dynamic personality, if you're not godly, if you're not on your face before God and being transformed in his presence, your impact on people's life will be very marginal, very small. We have many examples, though, of godliness in the Bible. For example, we're told in Genesis 5 that Enoch walked with God. I love that language. He enjoyed a close relationship with God. He, he pleased God. He was devoted to God. And that's the meaning of godliness. The word godliness, it, it's what it does is it describes an attitude of devotion toward God that results in a lifestyle that's pleasing to him. And I don't mean just a warm emotional feeling about God. And neither is godliness just constant Bible study and prayer. It's not that either. Godliness is an attitude toward God that shows at least three things, I think. One, respect for God. Two, love for God. And three, desire for God. Love, respect, and desire. But the principle is this. We will never grow in Christian character and conduct without taking time to first develop God-centered devotion. And that's why I don't think this list is in order because this is really foundational. Godliness is born out of devotion to God. So how do you grow in godliness? Again, let me be really practical here and give you several examples. Listen carefully. Number one, Discipline yourself to pay the price. Now, now just hear me on this. Discipline yourself 
to pay the price. First Timothy 4, 7, Paul says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. What does that mean to discipline yourself? Remember when Paul says he beats his body that he would not be disqualified? He beats it into subjection. Listen, that language Paul uses is so helpful. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, discipline your body. Discipline your body to, means go, learn how to exercise control over your body. Get up in, out of bed. Don't just lay there. Discipline your body. Work out, exercise, do whatever you need to do to keep it under control. Run to win. Discipline yourself by the power and help of God. Self-denial is the issue. Going hard after God requires great sacrifice. That guy that ha- that's ripped up and totally in shape, he gets there not because he's sitting around and going through the drive-thru at McDonald's eating lots of fries. He's ripped up like that because that guy's eating like a vegan diet and drinking a few protein shakes and working out like crazy. And if you want to get like that, spiritually speaking, it requires incredible amounts of sacrifice. What we want to do is we want to go through the fast food line, the spiritual fast food line. Just kind of zip through, get my Christian happy meal, give my little prayer time with Jesus, and bam, woo, I'm a great Christian. It doesn't work like that. This requires great sacrifice. Think about about this, though. Self-denial is the issue. Going hard after God requires sacrifice. But think about the reward. The reward isn't a ripped up toned body. The reward is God himself. If we can't get motivated to do that, then we need to reconsider who God is. God himself is the reward. Unbelievable. May he be creating that hunger in you right now for him. The sixth mark of a growing Christian is brotherly affection. We're flying through the, ends of, the end of these. Brotherly affection. The word is Philadelphia. It, it, brotherly affection has to do with our love for one another, the church, the people of God. And it's a powerful testimony to a lost world. Tertullian said this. Early Christian. He said, see how we love one another. One in mind and soul. We do not hesitate to share our earthly good with one another. All things are in common among us except our wives. Glad he threw in that last phrase. I love that. We, we share our griefs, our sorrows, our joys, our goods. We share it all except our spouses. What's mine is yours. What's yours is mine. That's who we are. But let's be honest. Let's be real, real transparent here for a second. Sometimes it's easy to love non-Christians more than Christians. Isn't that true? I mean, I think, it, and I think the reason for that is because our expectations are lower for non-Christians and we don't get hurt by them as much. But my expectation is higher for a Christian and when he does something offensive to me, I get really hurt about it. You say, yeah, but, but do you know that some of the people in this church are just so disappointing? Well, guess what? They think the same thing about you. And you know what? You're both right. Because we're all really disappointing sinners. (laughs) But God calls us to learn to love one another through this mess. John 13, 34. And by this, by how we learn how to navigate this mess, the world will know that we are disciples of Jesus.
May God help us. That's what it means to have brotherly affection. This is a family. God is our father. We have been adopted in. The women here are sisters. Men, we are brothers. We stick together. We stand together. We fight for each other. When someone is getting hurt, we step up and we help them. When someone falls, we go and pick them up. We love them through it. We don't quit on each other. One early Christian apologist, Minucius Felix, said it this way. He said, we love one another with a mutual love because we do not know how to hate. Thus, we call one another brethren. We are fellow heirs in hope. First Peter 1.22, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. People of God, we may not always feel warmly about each other. We may not even like one another at times. But listen, we have been told by our Father to always act lovingly. We're in the same family. The Father has come, sat us all down, and he says this, Kids, love, love, love one another. That's your job. May God help us. And finally, the last mark of a growing Christian is love. This is very simple because... This is different than brotherly affection. It's broader. If godliness is love to God, think about this. Godliness is love to God. Brotherly love is love to brother. Then love here is love for neighbor. Love for the whole world. It's it's love for our lost and dying world around us. And Peter is calling us to have that love for everyone. And of course, Christ is the ultimate model for us. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Another application here. As a church, I think we have a lot of room for growth in this area. I mean, there needs to be way, way, way more non-Christian friends going in and out of our homes in 2013. Do you agree with me? We need to make that happen. This year, let's make real progress in this area. Get a plan with your wife or your husband to make sure that non-Christians are going in and out of your home all year long. Develop close friendships with non-Christians in your natural rhythms of life. Eat with them, hang out with them, love them, be, at ch- be the church to them. They may not come here. That's not the issue. Go to them and be the church for them. Now, in conclusion to this marvelous passage, let me ask you this question in closing. If these are marks of a growing Christian, are they characteristic of your life? Test yourself. What does your spiritual life look like? Are you making every effort? Are you disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness? Are you hitting the gym and learning how to fight and defeat the enemy? What does your spiritual life look like? Does it look like P90X? Anybody seen that program? Men, by God's grace, are you getting ripped up? Are you getting that six pack or maybe even eight pack spiritually? Ladies, are you experiencing hunger for God and increased emotional strength and discipline in your walk with God? When you think about your spiritual condition, what do you see? Is it you hitting the gym and exercising and working out? Or is it you sitting on the couch with a remote and a bag of Cheetos? Do you see an increased tone and definition to your spiritual life? Or do you see increased flab? Well, wherever you're at, let me encourage you to take this list, another practical suggestion, and begin praying over it. Use this list right here. Grab an accountability partner. Use this as your prayer list and begin going through this. Do your own word studies of what 
godliness is and brotherly love and break that down and seek to know your God that way. The pursuit of godliness, that was, this is the message, requires effort, number one, and the pursuit of godliness is a process that's rooted in faith and results in love. The surest sign that you're a growing Christian is that you'll be increasing in these virtues. And if you are, then listen, verse eight, you'll have a useful and a fruitful life. Sometimes that fruit is slow in coming. And I just wanna encourage you here because we often have to wait a long time to see the fruit of our labor We live in a generation, as I said, that we want everything right now, but godliness happens slowly and gradually. And younger Christians, you see them growing like this, don't you? And sometimes as an older Christian, you get discouraged. You say, look at all these younger Christians growing so fast. But listen, don't be discouraged. Put your hand to the plow, older Christian. Keep moving forward. God may take years with you to produce fruit, but press on. God will deliver you. May God help us and deliver us from ever being content with anything less than beauty of Jesus being formed in us. God does not ask for perfection, but he does ask for progress. There is power available for the work. But friends, we must work. And I end with this quote. Because sermons like this can be overwhelming. And you say, I can't do this. I just can't do this. You're right, you can't but listen to Elise Fitzpatrick. She says, in your own strength, you do not have the ability to make yourself a holy God worshiper. So if you begin to feel dismayed, recall that God is committed to changing you and he can change you and he can change anyone. I think that's a good word for us. I'm expecting change in 2013. How about you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Take your spirit and drive this word deep into us. And may we be different and changed forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.